0: Hey, Matt. Hey, Ben. What's up, man? Oh, I am so excited for us to connect. It's been a little while for both you and I. You know, something's been keeping us busy this summer, and I'm glad to reconnect. And, you know, I I really think it's a kind of good time for us to podcast because in our world, we're getting set for the opening of another season. And though it's summer, our eyes are clearly set on fall and year end. So for anyone listening, I hope this is your opening day for getting ready for fall and Christmas.
1: Yeah, yeah. I love it. Well, and you know, over the last month, I just moved and that sort of thing. This new normal is pretty weird, but it does seem like life is returning in a way. Like Blue Jays we're recording this July twenty oh geez, fourth? Twenty fourth. Yeah. And the Blue Jays are are playing baseball again starting tonight against the race. It's just it's crazy to believe, you know, baseball's coming back, the Frontier team we're knee deep in fall and year-end fundraising, which is, you know, Christmas and July has been our anthem this month. And it, it's crazy to believe, but it, it feels good to not be, you know, being dragged down by some of the things of April and May.
0: Now, to be fair, for me, it would feel a little bit better if I had a six-pack of beer from someone honoring said betting agreement.
1: Oh boy, here we go.
0: What was our bet there, Matthew?
1: Yeah, so Ben and I have a little ongoing bet here, pretty much. You know, I think the ratio's got to be off now. You stepped just, into it. You stepped yeah, into
0: it. Yeah, that's
1: you, Hey, I set the set the odds, so yeah, I'm not I'm yeah. not placing blame on anybody other than myself. Yeah. But uh, pretty much Ben and I are trying to engage more, network more. For me trying to connect with more charities here and across Canada, like here being in Ontario where I work out of and Ben, you know, building external relations likewise and kind of the goal being that you know he's obviously got a bit more experience working with people in you know our fundraising world and I'm a bit newer so you know my odds so if I get more engagement over LinkedIn over the course of the month I get treated to a nice 12 pack of any craft beer I want and and Ben here Coming off, it seems like coming to the end, but it previously was set out to be, you know, non-alcoholic six pack and, you know, July ain't over yet. So don't speak too early there, but uh, he's two for two at the moment with May and June going to him, getting more engagement on LinkedIn. So I think I got to begin to turn it around.
0: Yeah, you really stepped into a trap there of like, I just pent up competition on my end and a, a deep desire to master LinkedIn as well, but the, it's funny because you are mentioning maybe an advantage I had. Like, so I think I would have joined LinkedIn probably 2006. However, LinkedIn—it's a funny one because there's some tools right now. We want to talk about social media later on. It's like it's—it's it's really coming to its own lately. We're doing one activity right now that, like, I was a fan of podcasting five years ago. I would listen to a lot of podcasts and it seems like the rise of podcasts was like the last, you know, six to 12 months. And I don't know about you if like has podcasting or, you know, LinkedIn or any other tool sort of grown in importance lately for you?
1: Yeah, certainly podcasting. I think just in general, the rise of streaming, music made podcasting, get a kind of a backseat along for the ride. Yeah, for me, getting into reading online and I I subscribe to The Athletic. And I think my appetite to pay for certain platforms that are top-notch, like a one-place shop, especially during this time. Like, I don't think, even though there's no sports going on, it's probably the most I've read about sports articles, funny enough. Flipboard's a similar one, too. Zoom is the obvious one, both like work-wise, but then with family and stuff. Yeah, so a few, but I think really it's just everything right now has been an acceleration of like, oh, if I was already reading a bit online, I got all the time in the world now sort of thing. You know, my my joke right now is baseball coming back and I don't think they're all, I think this will be like the highest watched season for the Jays just because, oh geez, like there's there's nothing better to do. And I think so many people have been put on pause that. There will be a lot of people you know, having family Blue Jays parties tonight.
0: I think so. Oh, one of my points around LinkedIn was I started more actively using it, say, four years ago. And, and I started using it in, in general in 06. But like, what's interesting is crafting a community in a social media audience is the people who I took my Bachelor of Commerce degree with you know, that many years ago or later a like CMA designation, like they're not the audience that really would care about the explosive growth and fundraising that Frontier is having. Mm-hmm. Although like there are some people that you accumulate along the way, like uh, one guy that I, I messaged today, who also himself just an enormously popular LinkedIn account and, and podcasting. Yeah, this is this Mark Raffin who does negotiations. He I, I met him at university. So you, you do pick up the odd person. Heath and I work together for most of our adulthood now. We met at university. But it's interesting to think of the community that you're building right now on LinkedIn. For the most part, it was just thought of you only use it when you go and get ready for your next job search kind of thing. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's just a resume. And then It's taken a while for it to build up as like the news feed is valuable. Like um, one person in our network, Sam Watts, the executive director for Welcome Hall Mission uh, is is a good active user of LinkedIn sharing content that is relevant to him, his organization and beyond.
1: Yeah. Well said. Well, and I think it's really cool, you know, social in general, right? I think I've noticed it in my life anyway. So you kind of build your core group, You post things with people in mind and that sort of thing. And I think that there's been even a bit of struggle in terms of like it's easy to do social media when you're a social person versus what does social media look like for an organization and how do you make it engaging when you're a brand versus others are and maybe brand isn't the right word, but you're a business versus you know, an individual. I think people using social media in other ways and it certainly is part of the fundraising process, but Having a wider view, I think, is so important with social and you know, digital in general, and more having a like, okay, what's the lateral view? What am I doing on social media so that I get donations, maybe not right off the bat, but like with that in mind, which brings us into this topic of digital acquisition, I think has been on everybody's mind. A lot of organizations, certainly those that have like been participating in COVID relief, respectively within their communities. If you're like in social service or if you're really in anything, I think just given how much this has touched so many different walks of life, I think right now people are wondering, okay, how do I engage my audience on social? I think that not necessarily just COVID related, but I think people are looking to it with this opening the door kind of more wide open. Um, So it's like, what are the best ways to use social and how to think about it effectively? Not only that it's like engaging for people, but that also, you know. As fundraisers in the back of our mind, we're kind of doing things with the end donation in mind.
0: Well, here's the thing though, Matt, is sometimes on blogs, there's a suggestion to occasionally have like a controversial, you know, I'm going against the grain. you know, I disagree with blah, blah, blah. I think if I were to write one, it'd be, it'd be social media, yeah. uh, social media and charities and how the entire industry has a false belief. So if this hasn't gotten your attention, whoops, but I really think we should take a moment and go like, what is the linkage between social media and acquisitions? So we could talk about that, you know, what do we ultimately think our acquisition tools when it comes to digital and is social media cheap and free, or is that a huge myth? And what would be the goals of using social media? One of the things that you mentioned that was so great was brands versus people. And I, I do want to say social networking. The one th- the thing that's interesting about brands versus people is it used to be that a brand couldn't show up at a party, kind of thing, right? And to be like, oh, hey, Matt, you brought, you know, Boobly? Like, oh, awesome. I brought, aha. And like, you know, just like, oh, I love that brand. It's so great that that brand is social networking with us right now, right? Like, it's just like back in my day, Matt, we didn't used to be able to interact with brands. And so now it's a new thing, relatively speaking, to have the fact that you could, and it was pretty cool for me to, in the early days as, as a social media nerd, you could send messages or publicly mention brands and they might respond. And like, I don't know if you have any of those experiences of going like, hey, um, at major brand or like interacting even on a, with charities, but it's a pretty novel concept when you think about it over the last hundred years.
1: Yeah, 100%. Well, and I think too, that was part of the excitement. But now, like I know, I've heard that a certain individual will only follow less than, it's under five, you know, like you can count it on one hand in terms of the number of brands they follow. So I think, in terms of just this, this idea of what is your brand and who are you trying to target, because most people aren't going to follow you. Certainly, most people definitely don't follow more than five different organizations. So I think it needs to be really clever in terms of what is your organization going to say on a platform that's mostly made. For social interactions, you know, I go on Facebook to see family, friends, and I think Facebook's really leaning into that too with an emphasis on Messenger and that sort of thing. So I think the need to understand how can I target my audience on social media is really important. And I think there's ways to maybe do that, but I do think there's certainly, it, it certainly goes back, especially as fundraisers. You know, social media is not going to generate sales. Your primary maybe direct response or major gift solicitation. More of those key building blocks come much more before in terms of what's going to bring you revenue than social media. But okay, why would you use it then? Like, what is it good for? And more importantly, if you are going to use it, how do you make sure that if you are going to use it with a fundraising perspective in mind, what are you going to be doing on social media to ultimately get? people to that, those more effective kind of fundraising, mass marketing tactics like mail and email so that your social media efforts are fruitful is certainly what comes to my mind.
0: Okay. I'll continue to be the contrarian. You can make a case for war, but what is it good for? Absolutely nothing is what I believe. Mm -hmm. And actually my parallel for social media is scratch and win tickets. And, you know, I don't know what you Matt, and your ethics around gambling, but I actually do enjoy gambling and scratch and win tickets. And I may or may not involve my kids in said practice. And the thing is, if you have an 11-year-old's brain, you're going, I'm a shoe-in to make $25,000 with the scratch and win. And you're like, this is amazing upside. And some people do win $25,000, right? Um, the theory might go, the more you play, the more your odds increase. But it's actually that there, you, you'd have to spend your entire life savings all the time to have like an effect on the odds. Mm-hmm. And so we were having this conversation recently, Ellie and I, because she found this one iPad game that was a, a spinner game, you know, just kind of like, duh, 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 duh. do you make money? Duh, duh, duh. No, you lost it all. <laughs> and she's like, the upside is $8 million. and I was like whoa okay I was like one thing to think about Ali, is at least eight million dollars was lost by other people and for this to pay off they have to have like asymmetrical odds that both parties both Matt and Ben are likely to lose more than 50% of the time and there's likely a transaction fee so the dealer's cut kind of thing so like I was just trying to tell her about the system at work here so let's think about the system at work with social media, Matt. Are there some examples that we could, but probably not going to bring up about charities having very successful social media platforms?
1: There is some, yeah.
0: So there's some winners out there, right? There is, but
1: it could be you. what you were saying. Yeah, right? it could
0: be. <laughs> and so my belief, it, it wasn't a formula that got them there. It wasn't a best practice or a system of like, hey, if you engage with your audience in this certain way, you too can be a winner. It's like, no, no, no. There is a certain amount of players pouring unbelievable amounts of money into social media, and eventually you're going to have a few winners. Now, if you're willing to be part of the the gamble that is social media popularity. Great. But I've met a lot of charities that don't like risking their own money. For some reason, there is a very low bar set for success within social media. And they haven't thought, hey, over the last hundred years, what has been the interactions of brands and people? For some reason, they're so keen to join this latest wave that brands and people can interact. And as one of the things that you noted, there's only like, say, five brands that you might want to interact with. For you, that could be the athletic, right? Mm -hmm. The Blue Jays, the Raptors. Okay, you've got a couple more. Is one of them going to be a charity? Like, we love charities, and I honestly, and I'll say this, I don't follow any of our clients' social media. If we're talking LinkedIn, I'll follow people, right? Those are actual uh, humans I can interact with. And, you know, they may or may not spend their lives working at the, the organization that they're part of. But that's the social networking side that's awkward for brands is that the people who might represent it move on. And so the soul of a brand, it, it needs to be like a huge brand. Even one thing that I find interesting. So this is before we go into some of our learnings. And so I do honestly think I will only engage with a conversation around social media. If someone wants to say, it's like, yeah, it's like a scratch and win ticket. We're going to, we're going to grab a young person's time and we're going to have them just scratch tickets X amount of hours a week. And we're going to, we're going to build this up so that it's popular. And I was like, okay, great. But for it to be valuable, you need to win the lottery that you need the odds to go, Oh, you've been chosen kind of thing. And because otherwise the use of branding, I think is, it's just, it doesn't work in the way that people think it does in social media. And and those channels evolve over time. Like you said, with Facebook, that Facebook won't always be the, the channel we want it to be as a business or a charity. And what do you know? Laws are getting in the way foreign like countries are interfering nationalist countries based in the u.s are, are interfering it's pretty dangerous to use social media as a main channel to engage with people anyways
1: yeah certainly agree with that definitely the main channel i think a mistake people can make as well is just you know i'm gonna do every single social media channel just because it feels like it's a checklist oh, oh twitter yeah. check facebook check instagram check LinkedIn check. It's like, okay, I've done all five social media, great. And I this is universal in my view. It's like certainly why are you doing all that versus just maybe doing one to the the effort you'd like to engage in social? Because certainly there would be some people, and there is maybe value, like if you have you know, five hundred people who follow you on Facebook, but just the reason to do Facebook for the same reason that like that you should just oh, because I do Facebook, I should do Twitter. I think is like a huge trap that people fall into. And then you're certainly not doing them all well. And you're just w- you know, putting time and, and effort into something that
0: won't be fruitful. Again, I'm, gonna just, I'm on the sidelines here, not playing the same game. Is like, if you want to get crosswords, if you want to get bingo, have at it. But just realize it's a complete waste of your time. <laughs> if it feels fun to do and you don't mind wasting your organization's money, awesome. I very rarely met an organization that actually feels that way, but for some reason, and I've been at it from the start, I've engaged with Facebook, Twitter, like from the 2000s, I got to see the initial wave of wonder and optimism and, and what if, from a, the way organizations that have used social media for change, that's a different discussion. There's only been a few moments in time where social media has helped humanity. Because uh, you could be like, what about the uh, springs? What are we talking about? But you got to know. Egypt, springs, and if we have Arab springs, if anyone's listening, they're like, oh, ban <laughs> the Egyptian revolution of 2011. But like, there's just very rare moments that social media has even been useful for society. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, then what would be your thought if somebody here is listening and they go, I see that from a fundraising point of view, but we use social media for just broader communications for public awareness and that sort of thing. Doesn't yeah. that serve value? And can't that certainly play a part in the, the top of the funnel as people become engaged and possibly become donors later down the stretch?
0: And it's okay. One of the things that you mentioned here is like the funnel. So I do want people to imagine an enormous funnel where at the end is a legacy gift where all of my home equity and all my savings that I've managed to accumulate, I will spread it between my kids and a couple major organizations. And if I move farther up, maybe I'm a monthly donor, I have been upgraded, and i re- like a regular loyal giver, you know, our loyal donors that we speak about.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: before that is someone who's given a couple gifts, and up above that is the first-time donor. And, and I'd say that the funnel was pretty consistent but then got uh, twice as big when we thought of that first donor to second donor. But then this funnel, as we look upward, gets enormous. And we want to think the bigger and wider this funnel is, the better. And, it, and there is awareness, there is advocacy, and there you know, all, all things leading to this acquisition of a donor. Mm-hmm. And so, like, how do I have lead generation? Which is a, an important term to know. And... Am I making the world more aware of my organization and, and the reverse is, am I more aware of the people who, who like what I do? And when you think acquisition, people support the cause, not the charity. I've never supported your charity before, Matt, I don't support you. But what you do, I support, and I don't hear negative things about you. So when you think about social media or any other thing that increases awareness, there's a countless ways to increase awareness of your organization. And there's use of both social media for advocacy as well, as like signing a petition, a pledge, anything that I say I'm affiliated with this organization's affiliation. So if Matt wants to make sure more people love the Blue Jays or have access to play baseball in Southern Ontario, maybe the Blue Jays Foundation or Baseball Canada is saying like, hey, you know, put your name down to pledge and say, I want more access to baseball for lower income families in Southern Ontario. And there's like, hey, you've shown an affiliation with this. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'd love to tell you more about our organization and and how you can engage with us at a greater level. And that usually means giving some sort of financial contribution kind of thing. So the thought that someone doesn't know you at all and then might start following you in social media to learn more, That is a, that I think is totally false. If you're using social media channels to increase knowledge, I would go like, okay, do you consider YouTube a social media channel? If so, that's the greatest of all. This is the GOAT. This is the AOC of uh, (laughs) social media channels. It is an upstart from the 2000s. What's interesting for me, Matt, is I, I do have to continually point out our, our enormous age gap, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, so when I graduated from university in 2006, that's when YouTube came out. And then when I was working at the university, Facebook expanded beyond the elite universities that it was, was kind of limited to for a while. Mm -hmm. And then when I started working in Vancouver and and doing a tech startup with Heath, Twitter emerged. And I I very specifically remember being in a coffee shop and have people start talking about Twitter and like, oh, Oprah and all these other famous people. Have you heard about Twitter? Mm -hmm. And maybe since then, like Instagram emerged and it was like they're in the tech community. There's like a sepia tone on a picture and now it's a billion dollar company. Yeah. Uh, But do you use any other Like main social media channels, other than the ones that I listed. No, and you know we could we could joke about TikTok, but I I I don't know if that will ever be relevant to a charity. But anyways, if you think about these companies, these are two thousands era companies, right? That landscape isn't shifting as quickly as people you know say it is, but YouTube has continued to emerge and providing relevant content and video absolutely a fan of that. And then you, can, you can push it out in all sorts of different directions. But the one thing that really fascinates me about YouTube is I'm, I think I'm mostly fascinated Matt because I don't use it much except for I'm like how to plant potatoes. And, you know, it turns out you, got, you let them sit for a hundred days. I learned a ton, but my kids use YouTube and I have had to set a limit on it, how much they love it. I and mean, then I've learned all sorts about YouTubers from them, but also my mom. So like I'm, I'm bookended by obsessed YouTubers. Um, mm-hmm. Both are going down their own respective rabbit holes. So if you want to have loyal followers and you really think you could have a sustained amount of content, you could think of your organization as potentially being like a YouTuber. Right? Right.
1: Yeah. Well said. And I think too, you pointed at just a great point of what are the odds somebody comes to a Facebook page, like something versus, you know, I think YouTube, you made a really good argument of like it, can be a bit more organic if, like, your content is relevant, fresh. It it kind of goes along with what your prospective supporters might be kind of looking at. I think is a really good point. But I think the the general thought of it, naturally lead generation isn't just going to come organically from Facebook. And maybe there's a separate argument for targeted ads. But you know, we talk a lot about ad campaigns as a as a way of focusing on lead generation. Maybe if somebody's going, oh, okay, well, I was maybe focusing a lot of energy on Facebook. What might be some better avenues for lead generation? Maybe just kind of dive into advocacy campaigns and how that can be helpful of, you know, finding prospective people who will naturally be coming to certain platforms who would maybe be good prospects to later engage and become a donor to your organization.
0: There's a couple of things where we'll talk about lead generation and acquiring a donor. And what I from a digital perspective and truly getting their gift what I think is the best and we'll kind of circle back to email marketing. But the one thing maybe if you're like, Hey, I, you know, my boss hired me to do social media full-time and like, come on, man, give me a break. Stop. You know, I need to justify my entire uh, job as, as a um, scratch and win scratcher. And I would go then go to raving fans. Like, who are people that, and, and why do we become a fan of a charity? Because, you know, I'm not, I'm like, you can't be like, hey, I'm a, I'm a fan of poverty eradication or equality for, for everyone. It's brands that represent that. So, for instance, like I said, if I'm a huge fan of AOC, it's what she represents, right? Like, it's it's her personal brand, and I want my personal brand to be similar. I like wearing certain hats, certain clothes, Building a personal brand around that too is like, hey, everyone, I need you to know that I'm a monthly sponsor for an organization that does X. It's, I, I personally feel compelled to let the world know that I'm a fan of this organization. And, and maybe I want to be an evangelist about it. Like, if I truly believe this is important, I need to share it with other people. And has that organization equipped me with content that I can push onto other people? And and that's often what you see uh, and especially if you follow like a more conservative audience on Facebook, which dominates it's it's just passing along information, uh, however weak on science it is to others. Right. And so it's not necessarily that they're writing their own content and, and then just passing it on. Uh, they're gathering something from where they're an enormous fan and passing it on to others. And that's part of that funnel is like the advocacy, is, is what's happening there though. I'm showing right. my affiliation with you know, Matt's cats and saying, hey everyone, I'm a huge supporter of Matt's cats and this is what I've learned about them today. And so should you, right? And so if you think about, but how are you feeding in to those people? Now there's one type of person that has emerged. They've always exist. They're, they're the super spreaders of social media. They're influencers. Right. Now, like Matt, like how would you define a social media influencer being like the quintessential millennial that you are?
1: <laughs> so an influencer, probably how I define it is somebody who has a strong following, engages with their following, and provides access like, hey, here's new ideas, this is something, and people kind of rally behind them, like in terms of their ideas and the way they engage with, you know, I think their audience.
0: Now, would you say that though the term is new is the concept new in the last hundred years
1: oh certainly not you know me and you we got a uh, jc leading the way there no just kidding but uh, <laughs> like like certainly not like you know there's like a celebrity is like an influencer i think just social media has accelerated who and who can be part of that club just with how accessible it is and how many people are on certain social media platforms
0: yeah, so the, the biggest thing as a fundraising strategist I go is like, how far back in time can we hop in our machine and, and find out? And if this still exists, like, does this language literally translate throughout time versus different demographics or different cultures? Is like, can we go back in time and is this still relevant? And I do believe that's one of the unique banism, and maybe it's not. People can point out that's a that's a common tactic. But so if we go back in time and we say, "Hey, this person's a social media or social network influencer," if anyone's grown up in a small town, they'll realize, "Oh, wait a second! You know, here has been environments that have long had an extreme lack of privacy, <laughs> where everyone knows suddenly what's happening in your life, right?" And, you know, I remember, especially my mom ran a bed and breakfast, she was a super spreader of information about my life. Like I couldn't, you know, tell a story without people being like, oh, we heard this from your mom. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, there's the town gossip thing, right? There's a person whose personal mission is to pass on knowledge about others, right? And because the small town structure is like kind of the way it is, it's hard to be overly private, right? And there's the same dynamic of, Few people speak, most people listen, which is that social media model. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you think about it, it's like, am I equipping super spreaders? Right? That would be another thing to think about in a social media strategy is not my voice as the brand, but the people who have voices, am I championing them or am I supplying them with the resources that they need to spread? Um, that I would be a- appreciative as a strategy. Yeah,
1: mm-hmm. very cool.
0: And uh, so I do want to go to the point of what I do view as acquisition is getting someone's email address and the lead generation that you can do, whether it's through an advocacy program or like I pledge to, to you know, whatever Matt's cats wants to say and that I can affiliate with their, their vision and mission. Like you can, you know, get me to fill in that form to, to show my affiliation and then communicate to me afterwards. Ads, as you mentioned, social media, the reason we're on it is we're the product. And and for advertisers is an ad campaign that leads to a great landing page. One thing that is, is underdone, um, maybe Matt, we can kind of flip it over to you, the term remarketing as ads to get people to do sign up for email.
1: Yeah, so remarketing, somebody comes to your website, Yeah. stick a little cookie on them, not a literal one, but just going to use web tools to kind of be able to follow them through the web afterwards, like based on the pages they're, the browser saving and using. So that part of the reason is, oh, this like saves my information. So when I fill out a form again, it remembers my first name's Matthew or whatever it might be, but also they the gun advance. So it tracks other things as well. And you can use that. Advertisers can use that. And that's good in practice, I think, just like in theory, maybe just that idea of like, oh, you know, like you went to a website that might be a prospective person. But I think sometimes a big question there is, is every single person who's going to go to your website uh, a prospective donor? Not always, you know. Then I know for Frontier.io, we've done remarketing and and one of our challenges and maybe failures was just that idea of, oh, we, we were you had friends coming to the website and then we were following them when our prospective customer or is just a charity, like a a proper business isn't going to be, have any value engaging with Frontier. So that's a big part of it too, from my view anyways, and where I would have criticism of remarketing is you have to make sure if you're going to do that, that the vast majority of users coming to your website are prospective donors or are donors.
0: And, you know, if you're a marketer within a charity or another one of our peers, uh, a great way to check this out. This morning, Matt and I were chatting and we went and took a look at Hope and Healing International. And what do you know, I opened Facebook and there was a great ad from them. And I think they actually have a a pretty decent landing page here. That one thing that we were wanting to talk about as well was landing pages uh, or donor landing pages for like checkouts and some of the strategy there, they do a good job of not sending you immediately to a a full-on checkout with no context. So they have a um, great line, give now and help bring God's healing to children and families trapped in poverty with disability. It's bolded. There was a sentence before it, but I didn't even read it now. And there was a great image of a mother and son right below it to the right. Yes, I want to bring hope, ellipses, dot, dot, dot. I don't know why. And God's healing. And here's some, some amounts. None of them huge. Um, another important thing is get someone in the door. We, we can upgrade later. It's 150, 150, or other. So it's, they're not saying, like, hey, maybe we are stumbling upon an enormous major donor and we should go 250, 500, 1,000. The only thing you know about them is that they've never given before. Right?
1: Yeah. And I think that's key too. Proper landing pages and making sure the funnel that they go through is applicable and relevant to. The audience in which you're targeting. Uh, so, very well said. Ben, any final thoughts? I think we're running the clock here, so I want to make sure if you have any final things to say.
0: Yeah. That- um, Innes did some great research for us, which I'd want to bring up. And anyone, a follow of Next After is a great idea. And so, I, I won't dive in too much to the Next After content and just say, like, anytime you spend there is great. Innes and I share both our UK lineage, but our a fandom of the UK's greatest advertiser, David Ogilvie. So copy is the most important part of marketing is something that he says. I believe it too. Our copywriters are our frontline workers. And at 7 p.m. each night, I would happily bang on pots to to say how essential copywriters are within Frontier. And so when you think about it and you're writing and you're designing a landing page like What's that go-to copy? Like I said, is, is that one line within the landing page that'll that will help you increase your sign-up rate for email. And Care Two is one of our partners that we work with advocacy campaigns. And one of the, some of the research that they shared was the cost of an email. If you think about it, buck fifty to two dollars on average. It can be up to three fifty. So when you think of all the over overall strategy that you're using to acquire emails, whether it's with social media. Ads, actual advocacy campaigns, and really think about the lifetime value of an email address. What I did see recently from BlackBot, which, like, you know, we're not gonna bring up their security issues lately, but um, was a little over $20 per year is the value of of an email. What we're doing right now, and we'll probably release some of our research pretty soon, is we've been building advocacy campaigns for clients, and we're seeing the return times multiple clients. So we're able to kind of work on what our benchmark marks would be. And once we have that, I'd love to release that info.
1: Yeah. I love that note to finish up on. So why don't we kind of dive into the junk mail if that works with you, Ben? Absolutely. Cool. So for any first time listeners here, pretty much every episode, we get questions from staff, some of our clients, not yet, but soon enough, we'll get kind of questions from listeners like yourself Yeah. So please, if you do have questions, Ben and I, we want to make fundraising accessible. You know, we love chatting and more than anything, this is, we can play a bit of a hub and spoke, I think, in terms of the clients we work with. And we have 20 other sample sizes, like a a big enough sample size to be able to speak into maybe things your nonprofit or charity is experiencing. So please, if you have questions, send them to junkmail at frontier.io and I'll be sure to talk about them on one of our upcoming episodes. So question number one, this is from one of our staff members. Right now, one of our clients is going through a rebrand and coming to the close. Internally, the the power of a rebrand, a refresh of messaging, a brand strategy report all helps marketers and fundraisers and an organization as a whole be able to tell their story and be their more authentic self better. But when it comes to particularly the donor or just the audience, a charity's core audience in general. Should a a rebrand be a big announcement, kind of a smooth transition? What are the pros and cons of like either route?
0: So one thing I do want to differentiate is leadership change versus brand change. Mm. And I think that there's opposite strategies there. So if the founder or well-known figurehead at a charity is leaving, I think it's just a slow right into the sunset. No need to go like, hey, we're under new management. Because that is a like a leaving and a new entry, right? Oh, but I was such a big fan of so and so. The way you prop them up in social media really had me, I was a huge fan of this person. And and I think it's like the, the more ideal is that we're together. Okay, the new person I hear from them more often and I kind of forget that you know, great marketers can make you forget a lot of things. And, you know, hey, look over here. And ultimately, we do want the the organization to come before whatever figurehead uh, or leader that an organization talks about. Because when we do our marketing, we're signing off Matt Hussey of Matt's Cats, right? And they're like, oh, I just, I love all the, the mail and email that he sends me, even if it is Frontier doing all the work, right? Now, if Matt's Cats was like, why are we called Matt's Cats? This is ridiculous. If we wanna be cats for kids instead, that I think you need to be quick like a judo chop. We are now Cats for Kids. And to be quick and as decisive and on all channels that you can launch this and make it very clean and clear, what we don't want to think is that there's now two organizations that, that exist, one called Matt's Cats, And another one that's Cats for Kids.
1: Yeah, well said. This is going a bit from the question, but I think it's so valuable. Like going back to leadership change, I think what a lot of nonprofits, particularly now, you know, this has just been my experience working with different clients. I think a lot of founders who started an organization maybe, you know, 20, 30, X number of years ago, you know, even Reverend Al here in town, you know, he started the Victoria Dandelion Society and just that idea of, oh, you know, from a founder's point of view, I think that can be a bit scary of like, how do I tell these people that I've brought in over X number of years that I, I might be leaving? And I think what you were saying is, is really key, that it really should be just that long sunset kind of framework in terms of how we kind of trans not even transition the story, because the story remains the same. But just that idea of like, how to make sure that Donors forget about it, and it's not big, which might come off as scary to your, to maybe an organization's typical donor.
0: Absolutely. And one of the things that you mentioned, the story remains the same. And what's funny that you mentioned with Reverend Al is he started the Dandelion Society before he started, before that, he started Our Place Society. Right. Before that, he started either the Upper Door or the Open Room. It's funny oh, how I'm no kidding. Like I didn't know that. They're like the same name. I swear, my brain can never separate. And even when he mixes it up, then I'm just lost. Um, (laughs) But like we did recently talk about it. It He's like, okay, you know, he does want to retire in the next couple of years. And I didn't want to be like, nah, we're good. Don't worry. Because the story remains the same. Uh, Whether there's a a struggle in terms of like a great leader, does it follow a great leader again? This is a baseball team, right? You know, you don't always have a great coach. You don't always have a great team on the field. Sometimes there can be a, a stumbling period. And they, sometimes there is even inter, intermediate or interim leaders, right? Where you're like, oh, that person was following a great leader and they're the fall guy. Kind of thing. Whereas a brand, if you were saying we were formerly Matt's cats, but we're now cats for kids, but we were always cats for kids. This is actually just a truer reflection of who we are. Mm-hmm. And this is a continuation of a story that, is, that you've been hearing for quite some time. Shouldn't it make total sense that we call ourselves cats for kids? Cause who's Matt anyways? And you know, once we finally had Matt get over himself, then man, it's just so much clear why we are in the industry that we're in and doing what we're doing from the name is a little bit more clear, right? The one thing I would caution is where it's a seasonal business in fundraising. So maybe you just kind of wait until like January, February, March, to, mm. to do a name change. I just, I'd never recommend doing it right in front of harvest season. Like most purchases, if you think of it that way for a charity, are going to happen that, you know, October through December. Do you want any confusion? Uh, absolutely not, right? Uh, so there is a, a rollout timeline that is essential. Like, you know, Matt and I have talked about it quite a bit to clients, is there's an ideal time frame for them to join us. Like we don't mm. let clients join Frontier in September. Why would they tell donors in late September or October that they've got a new name? That's overly short-term thinking in my mind. What's the difference a few months can make? And for some time, you'll need to say, we were formerly this. Yeah. Uh, because not everyone gets the press release. Not everyone reads the e or newsletter saying, hey, we were this, now we're this and Maybe even you don't care at the time and don't, you know, it takes you a while to realize they're called something else. We earlier mentioned, but said earlier brand, I keep thinking of them as their former name also I'm in the industry and I have no idea when they did their name change, so I'm not even in my seventies and I'm like, ah, what do they call themselves now? And thankfully their, their SEO strategy is good. And that every time I type in their former name, it'll still lead me to the new spot. Mm.
1: Yeah. That key part of rebrand is it should be kind of educational. It's like, this is like, we're better now. I think too, that's part of the reason to do a rebrand is you can re-engage donors. This is, we're better now. Like we know ourselves better and we know our ministry or whatever it might be even better now. So I think that's a huge part of it all. And hopefully to anybody going through a rebrand or working with somebody about a rebrand, that's a, a major component of it.
0: So um, I, I had a thought on how we might kind of wrap this up for one. I love it. One is I was part of a rebrand process for Union Gospel Mission. Mm. And so it was interesting to see the process. And, you know, these can get expensive. And we do branding work. We call it messaging for growth because our specialty is to grow your organization. And this is a pitch. But, <laughs> no, um, but what, what I found fascinating about it is, of course, the name didn't change. There wasn't mm. anything wrong with the name there was a key elements within the old logo that stayed in the new logo. and um, So if you think about uh, repentance, um, there's two ways to interpret that word. One is, you know, turning around. Another one is just the new perspective. So if you think of there's this downward spiral leading to upward change in their logo, and that was an important element of who they are, but their colors were horrifically bad. I, I, as someone who loves colors within the limits of my, my color deficiency, is the use of maroon was just a oof moment but then they basically adopted the the ultimate west coast Kanaxi colors hmm. like you'll see it in like everything like even like eventually the vancouver transit like changed and like everyone just keeps adopting these kind of green blue blue kind of thing but it was a font change you know, the use of logo best practices but you also sweep in that this is who we are now and we need to all be on the same page internally if you've ever followed the Care Bears, like we need to all be going in our stream in the same direction to have that ultimate power.
1: Yeah. No, I love it. Well but said.
0: Think of one brand that we both love that in 2004 really missed the mark on their rebrand. Can you think of this one? Oh, it's, it's a callback to the beginning of the podcast, man. It's opening day. Yeah. I think it's the Jays, right? It's the Blue Jays. So most people could care less about a charity's brand, right? We don't literally wear their colors uh, on our sleeves, whereas sports teams, that's very true. And, and so the Seattle crack, Kraken was launched yesterday. Yeah. And so you always have this emotional reaction first, right? It's important to remember around brands and marketing, it's emotions, not reason. And you, you stew through your emotions of going like, oh, do I agree with this? What's going on? The Blue Jays didn't think of themselves as the Yankees. Do you know how many times the Yankees have done a rebrand? Hardly ever, right? They're, they're like over a hundred years old and they have not had a rebrand. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's been like the Boston Red Sox have had, say, secondary logos. And even countries in the last decade, I noticed, have actually done small shifts in some of their, their flag colors, right. just ever so slightly. And I find that interesting. But the Blue Jays didn't know that they nailed it on the first go. 1977 they launch and boom we're the blue colored blue jays <laughs> and it was a somewhat traumatic childhood for me matt like you you kind of missed out on this dark era for the blue jays following well i guess you completely missed the best years of uh, back-to-back world series but then, yeah then things just fell off a map even while they had roger clemens one of the best pitchers ever to live and then they're like okay let's just you know emphasize the maple leaf because we want to make sure they know everyone knows we're a Canadian team <laughs> and we'll just make it bigger and bigger and then they're like you know what the bird isn't aggressive enough we need aggro bird we need it we need it to be a very aggressive looking you know hawkish blue jay <laughs> uh, even though when my kids were like hey look it's a blue jay and they just lost their minds and they're like papa you must love that turns out blue jays in real life are not very aggressive looking what's Furthermore, is they're not black? The Blue Jays in 2004 went black and silver in, in a blue stadium. Like it was just the most odd way for them to, to change. And it was a literal dark era for their branding. Did you ever buy any of the Swoopy J or the black merchandise? Uh, no, I don't think so. And, okay, one thing that was really well-timed for them is they realized, like, no, no, we're the Blue Jays. Let's go with our original look. We can do some small modifications um, to the actual logo mark. And so, like, they don't emphasize the, the baseball the way they did before, and, and there's some small changes there. And the moment they re-release their old look, just think of all the 30-year-olds that were 8-year-olds. Uh, back when they were in their prime, and then so the Blue Jays re-entered their prime to 2015, had a good run 2016, and then life happened to them 2017. It was just magical for them to go back to their original look. They had gone away from who was the truest version of themselves, and that that was yeah. an obvious money grab attempt. But like the endurance of great brands, like Coca-Cola, you know, just slow and steady. What's interesting is if they want to reach a different market, I bought Aha. And I was like, oh, look at this. It's a Coca-Cola brand. They're, they're not going to be like Coca-Cola fizzy water, right? Yeah, it's just, sports is such a great example because it's obviously pure emotional versus subtly pure emotional.
1: Yeah, well said. I You know, you think the Raptors, what they're doing with the We the North, what they were doing five years ago or so, boom. Obviously, you know, the championship is based on the players and coaching, whatever. But the, I think the brand's, made that such a success for how much traction they were able to do as well and that's actually a
0: good example of an organization that's like kind of found its footing from being like ridiculous branding really um <laughs> like man like already dinosaur sort of thing yeah you're in, you're in a good era to be a sports fan matt like, <laughs> when I, I remember being younger and going like this is ridiculous the grizzlies and the raptors and the raptors are like barney essentially like it's purple and it's a dinosaur. And kids slightly younger than me are big fans of Barney. So what do you do when you're a tween? I, I, I loathe everything, Barney. And, and here are these goofy raptors. And the retro jerseys, you're just like, oh, this is such bad design. Uh, so bad it's good. The same thing with the, the Grizzlies is their use of teal. It's like, oh, this is kind of comeback. Um, totally yeah uh, but like you look at the grizzly memphis grizzlies now their branding is incredible and so there is a maturity thing like maybe you're truly finding yourself and you didn't hit the mark in the beginning and i i think the raptors are a great example of a brand that's like it's found itself
1: well said well i think and we got to leave it here man because and i'm going to leave you with two final questions two quick ones where it's 2 41 p.m eastern time on my clock and uh, you know blue jays play tonight i think 7 p.m eastern something like that maybe 706 first pitch a who's gonna win between the race tonight and b you now give me a final score what do you think
0: oh okay we don't endorse gambling officially on this show but you know we could talk oh, afterwards here yeah yeah so we, we've got a team in the rays that are a talent factory though it's a 60 game season anything can happen but we finally have a great free agent pitcher mm-hmm. in Ryu. And yeah. I'm, Is he pitching he, tonight? Yeah. And he, oh. it's high love watching him because he's, you know, we've had some big body pitchers before that like they don't look athletic. And he entertains me because he's one of them. And we're going up against Charlie Morton. So like the, the Rays just have a, a bevy of, of great starting pitchers. A lot of people respect the Rays hitting team, but you and I, we, we love the, the Blue Jays hitters right now. I, I just can't wait to see Bo oh. just unleash. His whole body go, goes into it. And I, my, <laughs> my hope is that Vlad Guerrero, who, speaking of big bodied, is they've moved him to first base. So it's like, hey, you know what? Don't worry about trying to have those quick reactions to get the ball and move it over. And You were literally the worst last year. And so we, we want to upgrade the defense at third base. Just just focus on being an elite hitter. I think it's a W for the Blue Jays. I, you I got think, a final score for I them? think Ryu holds it down. What my, my anecdotal memory of so many Blue Jays opening days are blowouts. So I'm going to actually say I think it's a blowout. And I'll go. And so normally if you wanted to be conservative, you should be like 3-2, 4-2. Two, two. But I think it's like a 6-2 game. Ooh, for the Jays.
1: Yep. Okay, I like it. Yeah, I'm going – actually, I was thinking 6-4 is going to be my final score.
0: Okay, yep. Respect for the G- St. Uh, Petersburg race.
1: I think we're going to get a bit of beginner's luck here. And then game two and game three, you know, it's a brand new team. I think there might be a bit of hiccups in terms of the chemistry. But then for the rest of the season, I'm feeling pretty good. You know, it's a it's a fresh team. It's hard to say what it'll look like. So, Why don't we leave it at that? And next episode, we'll have to cough up whoever won the bet.
0: Absolutely. Hope springs eternal.
1: Yeah, I love it, man. Well, why don't you close this out here, Ben? I'll give it to you.
0: All right. I do enjoy the position of closer. And uh, I'll let everyone know that Frontier.fm is produced by Ben Johnson, Matt Hussey, and Rosie Everett. It's researched by Innes Perdue and sound engineering and edited by Nick Tissell.